Life's going to get easier, they tell me anyway. I think, I think, Lord willing, I don't know if you can trust those people out there at that, at, at that place, but um, just having a little fun with you there, uh, Randall. Uh, but I, I think I'm supposed to get out of my cast this week, and uh, I'm holding them to it. We'll see. We'll see how that goes. But uh, yeah, all right. So last week, you may recall that we started out talking about David and Goliath, and, and my favorite part of the story, uh, I, you know, I like the stone hitting him in the forehead. That's a great part of it. But the, when, when David goes up, this is the part we don't tell our children all the time, but, you know, when he cuts off the head of Goliath and holds that, that bleeding, dripping head, you know, in front of the Philistines, and they turn on their heels and run, and the people of God come rising up out of their hiding places and run. I love that. You know, I, I, I mean, that to me is so, so cool. And I, I thought, I'm, gonna just, I'm just going to remind you of it today because really today's passage is almost an extension of last week's passage. In fact, this could have been a two-part uh, sermon series called Slaying the Giants or Slaying the Tyrants. Uh, last time, you'll remember, I hope you picked up on this, that you had the Hellenistic Jews who had opposed the church. And you recall that they were the ones that led to the stoning and death of Stephen. They were the ones that vociferously argued with, with the Apostle Paul, not yet called that, still called Saul at that moment, and it, and it got so bad, and they threatened his life that they, he had to actually get out of Dodge. He had to get out of Jerusalem and go back to Tarsus. You'll, you'll remember that. And then, of course, what happened was, with the, with the stoning of Stephen and all this, you had these, these, these evangelists end up in, in various places and parts of the world where the Hellenists were, and lo and behold, God used them to just drive droves and droves of the Hellenists right into the gospel kingdom. So God overcame one of his enemies in the best way we could hope for, which rather than annihilating his enemies, he brought them into his family. Now, this week what we find out is, as opposed to sort of these religious tyrants and enemies of the church, we're up against a political tyrant in the form of Herod uh, Agrippa. And again, we're going to see the victory of the advancing kingdom of God. Remember that the whole book of Acts has to do with the advancement of the kingdom of God. And this is what we see. It is, is unstoppable. The kingdom of Christ is, is an everlasting kingdom. It is unstoppable. And that ought to encourage us because we face all kinds of faith-attacking giants in our lives. How many feel that way? From day to day, that there's just an onslaught. It comes in so many forms. You, you know, kind of in the last several years, around the time of COVID, a little bit before, you had these deconstruction stories. How many have heard about deconstruction stories where, yeah, people who call themselves Christians, there were a couple guys that were on YouTube that were real famous, and everybody, but a lot of you listened to those too, and they, they claim to be Christians, and, and, uh, and they continued to do that for a while. And then all at once, when they got really big, they're like, you know what, we're not Christians anymore. Just like that, and there's stories like that, and there's, you know, you've got very famous uh, atheists out there arguing against us. You've, you've got a whole sort of political climate that tends to be very anti-Christian, and, and on and on, Hollywood, the media, philosophies, they bombard us, and they tend to make us feel about like the Israelites did when they were cowering from the Philistines. Remember, he kept challenging them. He challenged their God. He challenged them. Come on out. Battle with me. And we're like, I don't think I want to do that. I, we, we, feel, we feel repressed. Be courageous when facing faith-attacking tyrants. We are not in the kind of danger we really think we are. Not in the ultimate sense. Now, I'm not saying that, that, 
bad things can't happen to good people. I'm not saying that, that, that some Christians can't, in fact, even be put to death for their faith. Well, you know, hurrah on that, then we get to heaven sooner. And, and it's a blessing, actually. To, to be a martyr would, would be an incredible blessing. We should, we should want that, in fact. But for the most part, these should not scare us the way, the way we tend to be. And, I, and I'm, I'm including myself, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about this under one of the points, but I feel that. I feel that, that sense of discouragement, that sense of, of being uh, repressed and depressed by, by what's happening, but we should be courageous. These are all going to be truths, truths that strengthen us. First of all, the truth that should strengthen us is that tyrants will come against us. You might say, well, that sounds kind of backwards, Jay. That does not strengthen me at all. In fact, that kind of scares me. It shouldn't scare us because what it tells us is that things are functioning as God has promised as they should be. We should expect tyrants. We, we, we should be more upset or worried if there are no tyrants because then something's off. Now, Peter could say this. He said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So Luke has, has told us of this great victory against the Hellenists, and then you have Paul and Barnabas on the heels of that, with Agabus's prophecy about the, the famine in the land going to Jerusalem, well, what we find out when he gets to Jerusalem, when they're, well, it doesn't tell us that they arrived, but as the story left off with them going to Jerusalem, now we find out Jerusalem had a lot bigger fish to fry than just a famine. It says, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, some unknown number of people, you know. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. It's kind of written in a matter-factly kind of, I don't know if that's actually the way to say it, but it's, it's a very matter-fact sort of way of, of saying this, isn't it? Eh, he just, he, just, eh, he just killed James. Remember who James is? Like all through the Gospels, when you read, who are the three people closest to Jesus among the twelve? Peter, James, and John. This is the James, one of the sons of Zebedee, the brother of John, that just, yeah, he just killed him. Just killed him. It was kind of a trial balloon. When you read between the lines here, it was sort of a trial balloon because Herod Agrippa I was trying to ingratiate himself with the Jews, which he did a very good job of doing overall. And he thought, well, I'm just going to see if killing some of these Christians will make them happy. <laughs> it's like a mob hit. It's leave the sword and take the cannoli. I mean, this is a, this is, this is a, a, a guy... With no scruples, there's not a trial, there's not a criminal charge. He just has so much power and such a desire to please the Jews. He's like, yeah, I'll just kill them and see how that goes for me. And they love it. James is actually the first of the apostles to be martyred. Now, Stephen was not one of the, he was one of the seven, which were kind of proto-deacons, you'll remember. But James is actually the first one. What I want you to do at this point is try to imagine what that would have been like for them. Can you... Can you do that? What would that have been like? There's these 12 really important guys, the immediate followers of Christ. You look up to them. They're the leaders in the church there at Jerusalem. Yeah, Stephen died. Eh, Stephen, he was great, but I mean, he wasn't one of the 12. And then, without a by your leave, without any resistance, no answered prayers or anything, just boom, Herod takes James and kills him without any effort, it would seem. Imagine if, if, if uh, and I know we don't have these kind of power structures yet, but imagine if like the mayor of Great Bend just decided, you know what, I don't like that Grace Community Church that much. I'm going to try to 
you know, I'm just going to try to squelch that. So I'll, I'll uh, take a couple of their elders, maybe that pediatrician guy, I can't stand him. <laughs> or maybe that teacher, you know, that teacher at the middle school. I'll just arrest those guys and I'll, I'll take them in and off one of them. Think about that. Think about, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Not only do they want to get rid of us, they just got rid of one of our leaders. That is, that, that, imagine that. And then look at what happens next. And when he, that's Herod, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also, this during the days of unleavened bread. In other words, what's another name for the, unleavened, the, the feast of the unleavened bread? It's Passover. It's the time of the Passover. And so this is, almost, I mean, with, probably within a day or two, it's lining up almost identically to the arrest, the trial, and the death of Christ. And there, there's Peter in custody. And Herod is not a slouch when it comes... I mean, the, the other Herod, this was a different Herod that, that we ran into when you had the arrest of, of Jesus. Herod Antipas was kind of a clown, wasn't he, in many ways. Not Herod Agrippa I. No, 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 no. He is a serious guy, and he is going to make sure that Peter doesn't get away. It says, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. See, I think Agrippa probably had heard the story. I mean, it, it had to be known to him about that time when Peter escaped. You remember he got arrested uh, by the council and they sort of had him in kind of a light duty, kind of a, a arrest mode, prison, not, not even a full prison, but he escaped. And the next day he was out preaching it. And I think Herod Agrippa I knew that. And he's like, that's not going to happen on my watch. Four squads of soldiers would be four sets of four. So 16 total Soldiers here on three-hour shifts, and they are not going to let this guy get away. Put yourself in that position. How scary is that? James is dead. The head honcho, the guy that you look up to the most, that you revere the most, Peter, has been arrested, and it seems like there's, there's nothing that, that's, going, that's going to save that. Is that really a lot different than the antagonism that we feel today? Do we feel, is the world today less hostile than that? I mean, in the U.S., maybe a smidge, maybe a smidge. But, but as I said before, we are up against all kinds of forces that are just daily striking at us. Not like they're arresting us and putting us in prison, but you, you feel that press that, you, that we're being told as Christians, we're idiots, we're crazy, we're bigots, we're all of those things. And, and we don't deserve, you know, to have a tax-exempt status or whatever it is. You know, you hear these, these, these con this constant drumbeat that the world is a hostile place. And my point to you under this first point is that this is par for the course. It's par for the course. The truth of that ought to at least say to us, we're on the right track. Because <laughs> tyrants are going to tyrannize. I'd have to make it, wouldn't that make a good t-shirt, tyrants going to tyrannize? I'm not sure what I'd be conveying, but I just think it would be kind of... Up there and in your face, tyrant's going to tyrannize. But that is, that is par for the course. It doesn't mean, and we'll see this, it does not mean that the gospel has retreated. It does not mean that the kingdom of Christ is somehow endangered. Okay. Secondly, second truth that ought to encourage us and strengthen us, tyrants are not beyond the bounds of prayer. 
Verses 5 through 6, Luke paints this picture. Poor Peter sitting chained between two guards, two guards on either side of them, him in chains too. And then you, you go out to, to where you would be leaving, probably what was the fortress of Antonio there in Jerusalem. And uh, there were two sentries standing guard at that point. Now, could you break somebody out of that situation? If you had the expendables, yes. Like if you had Sylvester Stallone... And all those other guys, they could fly in on a cargo plane, probably do it overnight. wouldn't be that hard. Uh, but this is before automatic weapons, right? This is before steroids. Uh, this, this, is, this is, yeah, I mean, it would have taken an army to have gone in there and, and freed Peter from that situation. But Luke tells us that there was one thing the church had, one little thing that the church had going for it. It says, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. How many feel like you kind of have a sense of what earnest prayer is about? How many have ever prayed a kind of um, throwaway prayer? Let's, let's, let's make a throw, we'll call it a throwaway prayer as the opposite of an earnest prayer, or at least on the opposite end of the spectrum. How many have ever prayed a throwaway prayer, meaning, hey, you had to pray? You sat down, you were really hungry. Somebody's like, let's eat. Come on, let's eat. Well, we need to say a prayer. Thanks, God. Don't. You're like, okay, well, that was meaningful. Um, we've all done it. It's not the end of the world. Um, but what's earnest prayer? Earnest prayer is, is heartfelt. Earnest prayer is constant. It's going to be an engagement of your, of your whole purpose and thought. It's going to take time out of, your, out of your otherwise busy schedule. You're probably going to hit your knees. It's earnest. Think, think of this battle royale. In one corner, hair to grip of the first. Right. Hair to grip of the first. Serious dude, honestly. I mean, he, he was adept in, in political terms. He had done something that neither his father's generation nor any of his cousins or brothers or sisters had been able to do. Understand, Herod Agrippa I had managed to reconstitute the entire kingdom of Herod the Great, the entire landscape that Herod the Great had ruled over. He had done that by political savvy and by connect, you know, he'd, he'd formed connections with Rome. And then he had done it in such a fashion that he ingratiated himself to the Jews. He went to their feasts. They loved this guy. Like, he was awesome. He, he kept the Romans kind of at bay when the Romans wanted to exceed, you know, what they thought was acceptable behavior. He would stand in for them. So they love this guy. And he is, he's, 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 like, he's like a godfather, you know? He, he's like a, a, a mob ruler. He can do whatever he wants. He can just take a guy like James and just execute him without trial. And all that he gets is applause, except from the church, naturally. But, I mean, people are like, yeah, yeah, you got that. Totally, totally cool. In the other corner, you have a fledgling, politically powerless, early church. From a human vantage point, that's a power differential, isn't it? What did the church have going for it? Prayer. prayer. Yeah. The Lord on their side, and they had earnest prayer to bring before God. Herod didn't stand a chance. You see, it, it was a lopsided power differential, but the power was all on the side of the church and the kingdom of God. This, I, this should encourage us in, in more than one way. Not only should we not be discouraged by tyrants, but doesn't it kind of give us a little... <laughs> maybe we should be praying more earnestly. Maybe, maybe, maybe we're quick approaching the day where the church has to get much more serious in terms of our prayer life. 
Okay, third one here, third truth that should strengthen us. Tyrants cannot ultimately resist God's power. Peter escaped. And this is one of the great stories of the New Testament. When I use the term story, I don't mean fictional. I just mean stories, the true events, things you tell and retell. And you can kind of, can't you tell in the reading of this that it's one of the stories that must have been retold many, many times over. Luke probably got it straight from Peter or from one of the many people who had heard Peter tell it many, many times. It's just that good. In response to the prayer and and, and please, an angel appears there in the prison just all at once. Doesn't tell us how he gets there. Doesn't tell if doors opened or, or you know, gaps in the space-time continuum opened up or what happened. It's just that, boom, there's an angel standing there. And he leans over and he gently whispers to Peter, Wakey, wakey, rise and shine. Did you ever have, my, my grandmother used to wake me up that way for school. I hated it. I hated it. I was like, grandmother, just yell at me. I'd rather that than because there's nothing pleasant about getting up for school. It shouldn't be made to be pleasant. This, this, they sent a, a drill sergeant angel to get Peter out of here. I mean, they, he basically kicks him. I mean, he smacks him in the side, like, wake up, get and and and, and get ready, right? It's just get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. Why, why, by the way, why did he have to move quickly? Do you, why are angels always in a rush? I've never understood that part in the Bible because they've got unlimited power at their disposal, but they're always hurrying people along, like telling Lot and his family, okay, get out of here, get, 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 get. go, 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 don't look back. Um, get up, move quickly. He stands up, the chains fall off. How loud would that have been? Why did that not wake anyone up? You get all this detail included here, which I don't have time for, but, um, but yeah, the angel is, is just guiding Peter along, just... just Everything. It's like a mo- how many moms feel like you have to be your child's brain in the morning to get them ready for school? Like, it's not just getting them up. You've got to think for them. And the angel is doing all of this work. It's like, okay, get up. All right, you got a cowlick. Get that one down. Smend that down. Put some water on. Um, you know, throw on your shoes. Get on your coat. You know, whatever order that might come in and, and follow me. Even though Luke is telling this, you can hear Peter just explaining this to people. Probably yeah. Every time he went somewhere, they're like, tell us the story again about getting out of prison. Okay, okay. Uh, so, well, there I was, and I'm, I'm asleep in this cell, and I'm not talking about REM sleep sleep. I'm not talking about light sleep. I'm in a deep sleep. I'm, I'm like comatose. I'm, I am dead. All at once, boom, I'm being kicked. I wake up. There's light all over the cell. I'm thinking I'm dreaming. This guy's telling me what to do. I'm, I'm glad because I didn't have a clue, and I'm wandering around, and all pretty soon, you know, I'm outside the gate the gate opens up by itself the iron gate can you imagine how loud that would have been he saunters past the the sentries the guards on either side of him have have, like how did they not not sound the alarm but then he gets to the gate of and it just (laughs) opens up right big iron gate on his hinges how loud would that have been this was not a time for wd-40 in the in the day they just had loud gates And uh, once they get through it, we're told that the angel left him. And you get this night air kind of finally, he's coming to his senses. It says, when Peter came to himself, meaning I know I'm awake now, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting, i.e. expecting to do to him or have done to him. Now from this point, then the story really gets good. If it wasn't good already, it, I mean, it, it does, it really gets good. 
Quickly, we're, we're introduced to some people, by the way. It says uh, in verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. We should pay attention to these little verses that don't seem to advance the story a whole lot because what do you see there? By now, after going through the book of Acts, you're starting to see Luke do this a lot. What does he keep doing? Just keeps intro- introducing people that we're going to see later. So who's this John Mark guy? Well, that's, that's the guy that wrote the book of Mark, by the way. It, it's the guy they're going to take along as their traveling companion who's going to be a complete dud uh, on the missionary journey. But that's, and, he, and he's related to Barnabas. We find out in the book of Colossians that he's a cousin to Barnabas. So interesting stuff uh, going on there. So they're all there gathered in that house praying. That's where the earnest prayer is taking place. But then comes the whole deal with Rhoda. Rhoda. Don't you love Rhoda? I think that had to be the best part of the story. Tell us about Rhoda again. I bet Rhoda told the story a lot, too. But it probably never made sense when Rhoda told it. That's, I'm just guessing. You know, I think she got it probably out of order and whatnot. Because she seems a little flaky. Does she seem just a little... Was that rude? I'm sorry. Some, somebody like, no, I'm going to stand up for Rhoda. Well, okay. All right. Uh, she's probably young. She's a servant girl, a little scatterbrained. Peter's knocking on the door. Uh, I guess, you know, you got to picture a house with a courtyard and then an outer wall kind of thing and, and a wooden gate. He's out there standing and knocking. She's, she's in charge. That's her job to go greet people. Um, and she goes, and probably a little conversation that Luke doesn't include takes place where it's like, hey, hey, who is it? Oh, it's me, Peter. Let me in, Rhoda. Oh, okay. And then she turns around and says, recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. Her whole job, she had one job, (laughs) was to open the gate. She just leaves him, it says, for joy, which that tells you something. It tells you she believed that he was on the... She's not in doubt. She's not got some cockamamie theory about why it may be the voice of Peter, but not the actual Peter on this. She's, She's just so full of joy and so excited that she has to go tell people, hey, Peter's out there standing at the gate. What would you have said if you'd been part of the crew in the house when she came and told you that? What would you have said? Did you let him in, right? Go let him in. What, what, what's, what's he, but people never do. You know, this is a funny thing. In, in, in life, people often do not do what, what, they, what you think they would do. Like I was at a wedding once, and one of the groomsmen keeled over. I always tell, when I do a wedding, I always tell people, don't lock your knees. I wasn't doing the wedding. I, I was out in the crowd watching it. And you just, this guy started to, boof, you know, hit hard too. Boom, right on the floor. Um, what would you think would happen at that moment? In normal human behavior, what should happen? Everybody should rush to him. Are you okay? The grooms, I, you know, I'll, I'll just stand just enough to, so they're all like standing. And he, they hear him hit the floor and they're like, that's it. That's all they did. <laughs> Because they're in a wedding and they don't know what else to do. It's like, oh, I don't know if I'm allowed to get, go down and help him. Uh, you know, as he's, you know, somebody from the crowd actually finally got up and did something for him. But we think we, think we know what we're going to do. But here's what they did. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. So they literally think at this moment that it is more likely that an angel, like a guardian angel for Peter is playing a prank on them out at the gate. 
or whatever his reason would be. Why would an angel go? I don't even know what is in their head. I, I get that you could have a guardian angel that might be able to throw his voice and make it sound like Peter. But why would that? Why would you think that? And why would you think that's more likely than that God actually answered your earnest prayers and that, that Peter is literally out there knocking? So he's out there cooling his heels. It says, but Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. And I think we probably see ourselves in this story just a little bit because we are amazed when God answers prayer, aren't we? How many have been amazed when God answered prayer? If we really trusted God, wouldn't we be like, oh, yeah, thanks, God. Yeah, I totally expected that. Uh, But no, we're always like shocked and amazed. This story must have been one of the most beloved stories in the New, uh, of New Testament time. Though. Sleepy Peter you know, meets pushy angel, dreamily you know, sails through the prison, gets to the gate, knocks, stands for 20 minutes while they argue about whether, whether he's really there or not. That, how can you not love that story? But think about this. Peter didn't believe at first that he'd been rescued. He's the great apostle. He's learned a thing or two about faith. He's, he, he's raised a person from the dead. But he had trouble believing it. Like, it took a while for him to realize, hey, I've really been rescued. I mean, I think Rhoda's the only one with faith. I mean, she's not too good up here. But, I mean, I think she at least had faith that it, that it really was him. The church is so slow to believe. I had somebody call me on this uh, just last week. I, uh, Rick, I think it was you, wasn't it? Or maybe it was, some, or maybe it was Craig. I don't, I don't know. We were at the Thanksgiving um, banquet thing we had a, a few weeks ago, which was pretty well attended, and, and people got up and said what they were thankful for, and I told the story of, of how I lost my, uh, my, my worship guy and my youth guy w- within a couple months, and, and how challenging that was, and how we prayed, and were amazed. That's just a think how I said it. I was amazed <laughs> that God answered our prayers, you know, so speedily and so well and, and how blessed we are for that. And uh, somebody did say to me, why were you, well, why were you amazed? Weren't you, didn't, you, didn't you have faith? So the bigger point here remains, tyrants cannot ultimately resist the kingdom of God. Uh, and I have to tell myself that, and you have to tell yourself that. Here, here's where I'm going to get a little honest here. Um, among my routine prayers for repentance, of repentance... And I do have a list of things that I, that I come back to, and generally I'm guilty of on some level. But one of the things that I find that I have to often repent of is being quick to become discouraged. Yeah. I mean, it, it is a sinful fault of mine. You say, well, that, you shouldn't feel bad about that. But it, it, it comes from an area of faithlessness, doesn't it? If we become overly discouraged by things around us. And, and I mean, I look... You know, we, we went through COVID. I mean, under my Thanksgiving place on my prayers, it's like one of the things I thank God. We, we sailed through COVID on so many. I'm not, and, and it's not that we didn't lose anyone, but we lost very few. And we were only shut down for a couple months. And then God's had us back together. I'm thankful, thankful, thankful. But, man, you see six families move from Great Bend all at once in a span of a few months. And then you realize that, that some people have not come back after COVID is, had ended and, and, and that the church is not as full as it used to be. And, and then you hear the de, deconstruction of faith stores and these kinds of things. And it's, I mean, believe it or not, I mean, I hear the, the devil sometimes whisper to me, uh, not audibly, I'm not that far gone, but um, 
But in my heart, I, I hear, like, you know, maybe the preaching of the gospel and, and just the simple exposition of God's word is not enough for the church today, you know? May, maybe, maybe you should look at some of these bells and whistles that we could kind of bring in, you know? And you fight that, you fight that, because it is so easy. But tyrants, tyrants cannot resist God and we have to remind ourselves of that. We have to take that courage. It doesn't just come free of charge. We have to lay hold of it. Tyrants, this is another good truth. Tyrants tend to irrationally self-destruct. And I like that. I like that. In movies, you know, you have uh, what are called tropes. Tropes in movies just means a recurring plot, a thing that gets done to death. And there's one trope called the, you have failed me for the last time. Right? You know what that one is? That's, that's, that's the evil Bond villain or whatever. Any villain, you take your pick. There's always that guy. And there always has to be a point when the villain has to express his power by killing one of his minions. And I, it, surely it's been done somewhere in some movie somewhere. But I'd love to see it just once where the, where the guy goes, have Mark take him out and kill him. And they're like, you killed Mark last Tuesday. Well, then have Bob do it. You know, uh, Bob was a, two weeks ago last Saturday. You know, where he's just how can you just keep killing off all of your followers? But that's what that's what evil people do. It says now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Peter's always getting people killed. Have you noticed this or not? Yeah, this is not the first time in the book of Acts that somehow Peter's indirectly responsible for getting people um, uh, whacked. But anyway, um, and, th- and then he went down fr- from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. So just all in a day's work, 11 o'clock and on with the day. This illustrates the fact that Herod was a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, he was a jerk. <laughs> he, he, was, he was just this belligerent, proud short-sighted, evil, you know, maniacal tyrant. I mean, don't get me wrong, he could put on a good face. He was the least outwardly tyrannical-looking Herod of all the many, many Herods. We get lost in how many Herods there are. There were a bunch of Herods, not even, beyond those that are even mentioned in Scripture, there's so many Herods. But, but yeah, he, he could play a good game. He could look the part. He could take part in the Jewish festivals, and they could think, this guy's a really good guy, but this just... This just shows you he's evil. He's just an evil dude. Most of the people we fear are like that. And uh, without going through a whole long list of, of all the people in history that have been like this, so you just think about, like, what, the, always the example comes, Hitler. Well, Hitler was self-destructive. He was an, I mean, he was brilliant at getting people to follow him. He, he, he was a brilliant, you know, orator in in. In German, but man, I mean, beyond that, he wasn't exactly a military genius. I mean, you start two fronts with you know all the major superpowers at one time, you're kind of an idiot. And at the end of it, what does he do? He just shoots himself in the head, and he, and he and he and he's done with it. And you can go down the list, and you think about the Ahabs and the Jezebels and the Stalins and all of the rest. But eventually, eventually, they are self-destructive for the most part. And that's the good news, right? Tyrants reap God's just uh, judgment. If you like the David and Goliath thing with the bloody head part, how many like that? I just want to show of hands I just to whether I should keep doing that. How many really don't like hearing about the bloody heads of, of giants being suspended? Uh, all right, you just aren't willing to say. Okay, if you thought that was good or bad, depending on your, on your take, 
you got to love how things end here with, uh, with Herod. What Luke tells us uh, is, uh, is not pretty. And it goes very much, very much along with what uh, Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish historian, Jewish Roman historian, and he gives us a lot of backstory, a lot of parallel information in the New Testament. It's interesting. But here, I mean, he tells us about Herod Agrippa I and his end, and we'll get to that. The story plays out in Caesarea. If you're interested in the, the, um, the geography, the geopolitical uh, happenings here, he's in Caesarea. You'll remember that was the base of Roman power in Palestine. Strangely enough, this is just an aside, but Agrippa I actually had moved the power base to Jerusalem in an official way in order to please the Jews. So, I mean, he really was planned. But he was in Caesarea. He was mostly in Caesarea. Well, the people of Tyre and Sidon, which were kind of competing port cities with Caesarea, they got into it with them. We don't know why. They were not happy with each other. They were not getting along. But remember, we have a time of famine coming. And guess where Tyre and Sidon got their food from? They got it from the area of Galilee, which, which Herod was in control over. And so they come, kind of hat in hand, in order to make peace with, with Herod. And he comes before them on, on a set day, and he's all, you can picture it, he's all dressed in his royal robes and, and finery, and he's ushered in, I'm sure, to the sound of trumpets, and he ascends up to the throne, and he sits down, and it's just, you know, the sun is shining, and, and he is resplendent with all of the gold and everything. And then he, then he starts to talk and apparently he was, he was a pretty good talker. I mean, I, that's what we know. He, he, he was a good speaker. And he spoke, and they're, you know, they're flattering him a little bit, but they're like, oh, it's the voice of a god, not a man. And he's probably just beaming in that moment. And at that moment it says, immediately an angel, thank you, angels, we like you. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he had, did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last worms. Whew. How many kind of like that and feel like that's a fitting end for this guy? You don't want to say? Okay, all right. Uh, but I love how God's angel gets in there and just demolishes this tyrant. I mean, if you, if you like Goliath's head, this is just so much better. And uh, Luke kind of, the way Luke tells it, it's kind of compressed. You, you almost have the idea that he just dropped dead on the spot. Uh, Josephus, and maybe he had it wrong, but Josephus indicates that there was like four or five days where he just lay in grueling, horrendous pain. Probably because the worms were in there doing their work. All right? And then finally, yeah, he just, he just succumbed to it. Eaten by worms. That's nasty. Why would he die such a nasty death, class? <laughs> well, how about he put James to death, uh, one of... Christ's inner three. He put him to death. He opposed the kingdom with every bit of, of political power that he had. And, and to top it off. And this, you know, when we talk about God's glory being the highest good, this is one of those texts you could go to to prove that. Because after all this evil he did, the final straw is that he does not give God glory. And he reaped God's judgment. How good is that? You know, we don't get to see divine judgment play itself out all that often, and maybe there's a reason. Maybe our hearts aren't supposed to really be. But, you know, I mean, Ahab's and Jezebel's come, and not all of them end up, you know, having their blood licked up by the dogs from the streets, the way the story is told. Not all of, not all of the bad guys get their heads chopped off. Not all of them, you know, are eaten by worms. But, but what, this, what this passage is telling us is that God is in control. 
And, and he will bring judgment in its time. But that judgment to those tyrants will come. So we need to encourage ourselves. Finally, tyrants are forgotten, but the word of God keeps advancing. It reminds me a little bit of this, uh, the poem Ozymandias. How many know this, uh, the poem Ozymandias? It's just one of my favorite poems. I, th- I think it just speaks so well where, you, where you've got this. Uh, it, it's a very short poem, but I'm not going to uh, recite it or read it. But, but it's, the, the thing about it is he's telling of, of this person who's traveled, obviously in, in like Egypt, and, and this just all around is sand, and there's these two legs of a statue long ago fallen over. There's a headline in the sand, and when you come up and you read the inscription, it says, I am Ozymandias, uh, you know, the great and terrible Oz, or whatever, you know, kind of a thing. Uh, you know, look upon me, uh, all ye mighty, and, uh, and fear. That's, that's Ozymandias, and he's, and he's forgotten. He's forgotten. He has to be dug up. And, and all around, you know, the, the, the poem ends with talking about how all around is just sand. Like his kingdom isn't even there. It's, it's vanished. And he's all, all but forgotten. Um, as they are carrying away the worm-ridden corpse of Agrippa I uh, for his burial, I'm sure it was a lavish burial. He probably got a better burial than any of us will get. Anybody feel jealous of that, envious? Does, are you envious of him that he would get a better kingly burial than you'll get? No? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not worried too much. But, but we have these great words. But the word of God increased and multiplied. That's fantastic. Tyrants are forgotten. They come and they go. And yeah, they do their worst during the times when they are reigning. But look what it says of the kingdom of God. This is going back to Isaiah again, which we read from earlier. Isaiah chapter 9, speaking about Messiah, speaking about Christ. Of the increase of his government. And of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. The kingdom of Christ doesn't end. The kingdom of Christ is advancing. There's not going to be some statue long forgotten in the sand. Even in a metaphorical sense, we'll not look at the kingdom of of Christ in the world and just see just, just forgottenness. That will never happen. But it will happen of tyrants. Praise the Lord. We're, uh, we're flesh and blood, so I understand why we get where we get. Um, where, you know, we can't believe when our prayers are answered. When the proverbial knock is at the door telling us of our answered prayer, we're just sitting there dumbfounded like, oh, I don't know what that could be. Like, couldn't possibly be God here, you know, delivering uh, salvation. We're, 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 we're prone to that. We don't see how God deploys his angels. We're told that they're ministering servants for God's elect, but, but we don't see that. When tyrants rise and enemies set themselves against the kingdom of our Lord, we lose heart all too easily. What? What? You've, you, you, you've heard of a deconstruction story and it bothers you? I get that. I get that. Maybe you know prodigals like I do and your, your list of prodigals gets longer and longer. Or you see Christians abandoning the fellowshipping you know, of themselves together, or the assembling of themselves together. Maybe you look around the church and you see some empty chairs, <laughs> not just a couple, and you go, what's going wrong? What's going wrong? Is Christ's kingdom being somehow defeated in our day? No. May it never be. May it, it never be. Christ's kingdom will triumph. And it doesn't matter who sets 
themselves against the church, against the Lord, they will fail and God will bring them to judgment. So stay strong, pray, have faith. God's got this. If you don't know Christ, um, I would just say to you today, is it, it, for you, as you look at that story, you kind of have to try to find who you are in the story and where you line up because there's really only two. I mean, it's very dramatic in this story, isn't it? You can be part of us, the bumbling, stumbling, flighty-headed, doubting people of God who have earnest prayer on their, on their side and, 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 and angels and, and, and salvation in, in, in Christ. Or you can be part of worldly systems and worldly powers and all those things that, which are for a moment, but then they're forgotten. You don't want to be part of that forgotten. You don't want to be part of that, that sort of worm-ridden judgment of God. You, you want, I, I tell you what you want, you have to decide what you want. But don't you want to be part of something which is eternal? I pray that you do. And, and so we hold Christ out to you. What, do you. what do you have to do? You have to look to Christ in faith, turning from all, whatever was yours, whatever you held to, whatever, whatever you, know, you held with clenched fists, you let go of that and you look to Christ and you trust in him. And he will save you and he will bring you into his kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the encouragement that we can receive when we really look into your word. And uh, Lord, we know that we're not so much different than Rhoda when it really comes right down to it. Or at least we're not that much different than the people that had given all that earnest prayer and yet stood dumbfounded when they heard the knock at the door. And, And Lord, forgive us for that. Forgive us that we are too often easily discouraged and we can cower when we hear the voice of giants lord help us uh, help us to remember and call to mind that uh, that your kingdom keeps growing it keeps going and tyrants will not ultimately stand in your way and uh, let us trust ourselves into your care i pray that there will be those that hear this message today and they they see the outcome of a life lived without you and they will shudder and fear and turn right now and receive the free gift of salvation. We ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.